Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jace White, Program Officer with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I'm joined today by Professor Jing Tsu, whose newest book, Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern, hit bookshelves earlier this year. Jing Tzu is the John M. Schiff Professor of East Asian Languages and Literatures and Comparative Literature at Yale University, where her research spans literature and culture, science and technology, nationalism, diaspora and migration, global security, and human rights in Asia. And we're proud to say that Jing has also recently joined the Board of Directors here at the National Committee. So Jing, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So let's dive right on in. Uh, what first inspired you to write this book and why now? Um, in some ways this book was, uh, I, it was a loose thread in some ways from my last book, which was about sound and script in Chinese diaspora. And one of my favorite writers at the time just happens that he had this whole other life where he was trying to build a typewriter. So I wrote a chapter about it, but I always knew that I would come back to this at some other point, because it seemed like it opened up a whole new chapter of China's um, science technology, a kind of little known history to the outside. And I think it's particularly relevant to the way we look at China today, you know, sort of global landscape of competition and dominance. And so when I finally had a moment to return to writing, this was what I embarked on. Great. And to approach some of the basic history, what was it about the Chinese language that required modernization in the first place? And where did that path towards modernization begin? We knew that in some ways this is almost common knowledge to many, but it's a persistent myth in some ways, and, and with some good reasons that Chinese language is the oldest living language. Um, of course, it's spoken by more people than any other language in the world, but that's also because China has the largest population. Um, but at the same time, it's also been China's first and last great wall. You know, early missionaries who traveled to China, the first thing they run into is how bizarre and strange this language was. And, you know, missionaries trying to write down what it sounded like in their own alphabetic, you know, languages. Like the French had their own way of romanizing Chinese and the Germans did, the English did. So all tried to try to get a handle on this language that was utterly different from any other known writing system, certainly the Western alphabet. And so that myth kind of persisted and it kind of followed in some ways China's relationship to the outside world. So in the 17th century, it was discovered as kind of like an awe, a source of awe and, and wonder um, by Europeans who were looking for a language that was close to the, the mother tongue of God. And Chinese seemed like it. And then 18th century is a whole century of just incredible fetishization, idealization and pursuit of the Chinese key. 19th century, however, which is kind of the way, you know, the, the more relevant century for the world we are in today, where China opened itself up, so to speak, to the West, you know, Chinese language underwent a kind of phase of disillusionment, like the Westerners, the Europeans all of a sudden thought, this is a language that seemed rather backward and primitive, and it's kind of averse to modernization and science and technology. And so very much this, this history of the language followed very closely in some ways the travails and dynamics between China and the West. Now, you begin your book with a few quotes uh, which showcase the changing views of the Chinese script's relevancy to modernity. Um, from Lu Xun claiming in 1936 that if the Chinese script does not go, China will certainly perish, uh, to Chen Mingyuan, who later said uh, in 1980 that computers are finally able to process Chinese, long live square characters. 
So when did this will to save Chinese characters prevail? You know, it's so interesting because those two quotes really kind of um, bookend a very, very tumultuous era in 20th century China. When we think of its history, it's like wars, invasions, tumults, revolutions, factionalism. And it was true that even before Lu Xun, the late 19th century, our first generation of reformers who looked at basically reforming the language script, they actually were quite open and progressive about it. They were thinking, oh, why don't we just do away with it? You know, why don't we just come up with some other notation system? Let's borrow from alphabet. Let's borrow from Cyrillic letters. Let's, let's just make some up. Let's, you know, use kana. So they're very much into the idea that, you know, it's true that the Chinese script does not go. China will sink with it. But that was also an era of the last dynastic fall, right? That China was undergoing this, this amazing, unprecedented, probably never since like a, a period of rebirth and trying to figure out what its place was in the world. And so at the time, one has to take with a little grain of salt that they were saying, let's get rid of Chinese language. Because certainly shortly after, by 1912, you know, our first republic, when the Chinese nation was born, it was quickly realized and agreed upon that you know, Chinese language is not going to go anywhere. Why? Mainly because of the force of nationalism. And in some ways, oddly, this outside influence is what also galvanized Chinese intellectuals to recognize that there are many things we need to do to modernize our country, but letting go of our primary cultural heritage is not going to be one of them. There were, of course, some dissenters along the way, lots of infighting about Romani to Romanize or not to Romanize. But in the end, it was clear to them that China needed Romanization, for instance, to bridge to its ultimate survival but it was gonna keep character writing at all costs. Now, many of the innovators that you write about spent a lot of time studying, working and living in the United States. What does this tell us about the significance of US-China exchanges in science and technology, as well as more broadly uh, to China's modernization project? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because in many, many ways, you know, I wrote this book to highlight the fact that China and the US and the West have long learned from each other and worked together before they turned foes at different points, right? That they didn't necessarily cooperate to the same goal, but they certainly found a way to work towards the same, um, I think, questions, right? They had the same quest. And what I love about this story about the Chinese language is that it was not a Chinese affair, right? People think of Chinese language like, oh, that's very insidery. But that's not at all the case because foreigners and Chinese alike were all attracted and drawn to this quest to crack the Chinese code. And a group of very important forgotten players in this history are actually Chinese Americans in America. So there are two instances of this. One actually I wrote about, the other one I didn't get to dig into too much, and there's a reason why. So the one I wrote about was this man named Francis Lee, who was, who came to the United States shortly after 49. He was an MIT student, a star, but at the time, he came under the tutelage of Samuel Caldwell, which some people actually credit as the father of Chinese computing. I'm sorry, they, there's motion sensor in, in, my, in my office. I might just leave it as is if you will. And it's a little, let me just That's fine. <laughs> wave. Yes, thank you. Yale saving energy these days as well, <laughs> as we all should. So in any case, that Francis Lee was a graduate student who, when, when Samuel Caldwell was first consulted and was in this very small meeting about how to build a machine that could basically use Chinese. 
a kind of early digital machine, kind of the first Chinese computer. This graduate student, Francis Lee, was in the room. But it was very quickly left out of official memos, but it was recognized within, if you look through the archives, that he was actually critical and actually contributing to the Chinese part of the project, which is basically the backbone. But as 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 we have we know many many times over, you know these contributions tend to fall out of history, and for some reason, perhaps a political sensitivity that they didn't want to see a Chinese scientist involved. But Francis Lee was absolutely critical to this, and that so even though people talk about Samuel Caldwell at MIT as kind of history of Americans cracking in the Chinese computing, it was actually also Chinese American. You know, who was able to bridge this divide between China and the West and to really kind of transfer knowledge back and forth. And he even went back to Beijing to help Tsinghua University build his first microprocessing lab. Now, that's one story. And even an earlier one, the 60s, is another man who co authored this very seminal paper on machine translation with his IBM director, Gilbert King. And this paper was also vital for the development of. Uh, a standardization of a Chinese of, of a computer encoding that we all use today. Whether you type any language script in the computer, it basically goes through this conversion process with something called Unicode and gets like transferred to the delivered to the end users on the computer. And this paper also had a Chinese co-author, and I could barely find any information on him. And he is this very sort. So there, there, there's at least one or two generations. Of Chinese American contributions to this development of not just you know Chinese digital technology, but I think just computing technology in the United States that is still I think waiting to be uncovered and waiting to be accounted for in full. Now to switch gears a, a little bit, has there been a sense of cultural loss uh, in China having modernized this millennia-old character system? Uh, for example, and to say nothing of the political implications, has character simplification impacted the appreciation for calligraphy as uh, one of the high art forms? It's very funny you should say that because as, um, as re just recently in April, um, there was a, a, a new regulation in China that set out to essentially weed out and to ban um, what are called guaizi, like strange scripts, like unauthorized and very unorthodox um, fonts um, that's generated just digitally. You know how like, you know, we have certain fonts that we use in our computer, like Geneva or Helvetica, et cetera, et cetera. And China has actually been a huge thing to their font competition and come with different ways of, you know, having different styles of Chinese writing. And recently the government actually kind of cracked down on it because they're thinking that, you know, this is, this is kind of unauthorized, a proliferation. And I suspect that behind it's the idea that because it required no craftsmanship, you know, it's just some manipulation with some vectors and, you know, codes in, in, in the computer. So in some ways, like, you know, it always wants to preserve a certain kind of cultural distinction, right? A kind of cultural history behind the writing itself. Although it's a very interesting process because when we think about it, it is true that the Chinese characters still look, you know, they still talk and walk the same, right? When, when I, if I email you or you ever text me, but behind it is completely transformed, right? It's not put together with ink on paper is literally kind of broken down to binary codes and it's kind of disseminated like every other information um, through the computer. And so I think in general, this idea that there's a cultural loss, I'm of two minds about this. I mean, as a historian of science technology, I would say this idea of cultural loss, this argument has been made every time that there's a new innovation, technological innovation, right? 
telegraphy. There's a worry that we wouldn't be able to write anymore because all this is kind of being, you know, people try to save money because they were charged, you know, by the word. So they were shortened the text as, you know, the message as much as possible. We certainly know with texting, I mean, certainly our parents would know the fact that nobody knows how to spell or even possibly write anymore. So I think that's part of a larger, I think the larger concern um, It's not unusual or distinct to China. But I do think at the same time, obviously as a native speaker, a native user of Chinese language, I do think there's something, um, I do think there's a certain sense of loss, but I would say it has to do with the fact that we know that when you write something down, it actually sticks to your memory. You learn better than if you just type it out on the notepad. Like we know that you know there are all kinds of things that help us remember. Like I, one of the things I I always write, like personally when I when I see my mother's handwriting, it has this very evocative feeling for me because I, I remember as a child I loved watching her write because she had this really beautiful hand you know beautiful handwriting and she wrote very fast. So her cursive style is also kind of how I learned how to read very simplified Chinese. So there are certain those, there are certainly those things that I think is a little bit lost in, in the digital transformation. But at the same time, you know, you can also communicate. I can, you know, one could communicate faster with one's parents. So I think there's a kind of, you know, the, the balance that one has to maintain. There's always a loss and there's always a gain. So with the, the Chinese language having been successfully adapted to the computer and information age, seems that that might've been the last linguistic hurdle to clear. Uh, but are there any further challenges for Chinese the, presented by emerging technology, for example, artificial intelligence that we might see on the horizon? You know, oddly enough, the two are actually kind of related because without digitizing Chinese language, right, without entering a Chinese character writing into the computer, you would not have been able to move on to the era of machine translation. Um, automatic translation, which was actually one of the original areas where early AI was applied in the post-war period. And in many ways, because China had to catch up in these things, and in some ways, precisely because it figured out how to, how to um, fit its complicated writing system into a kind of alphabetic dominant infrastructure or technology, it actually ended up learning a lot more in the process, right? It learned both how to adapt its language peculiarities in the digital realm, but also to master the strengths of the alphabet system. So it actually, in the, in the, in the area of AI, that is natural language processing, deep learning, China is actually very advanced. Right, because just a couple of years ago, there was this competition with Google, and you know, Baidu came out with way of its its own automatic translation, and it was even more efficient. Also, because they figured out in some ways they were better at certain kinds of operation, like um, predictive texting or segmentation. Because to cut a long story short, that if you know Chinese, like knowing which characters are actually to be read together is actually very important, right? If you don't know that, you'd be looking up every character as though we're an individual unit. And most Chinese, unlike the longstanding myth that says it's monosyllabic, is, does not work that way. It often occurs, characters occur in pairs. They're not just standalone characters. So in that sense, I think the two actually one led to the other. And we have much to expect, I think, um, to expect from China in the area of artificial intelligence and natural language processing. Great, thanks. And uh, I'd actually like to return to an earlier question or expand on an earlier question that we had uh, uh, asked. 
Um, I'd like to ask about the state of cooperation or lack thereof uh, currently between Chinese and American computer scientists. Well, it's interesting you should ask that question since we're just very, very much on the heels of just, uh, I think, reeling back from the China initiative um, under the DOJ that had been going on for a few years, which actually turned some Chinese American scientists away. As we had worried about during this process, it actually discouraged, even discouraged Chinese students from coming to study um, sciences and usually come in the STEM fields um, to come to the United States. And that was, you know, in some ways, if, if that trend would have preempted people like Francis Lee, right, that I talked about in uh, it was chapter six. And the state of cooperation now, unfortunately, I think is kind of rather subject to the tide of international politics. There's extraordinary, in some ways, an unprecedented level of competition between China and the US. Um, this is not a kind of rivalry we have seen before. Uh, we're looking really looking at two comparable right, comparable powers um, going for the next gold ring in the area of science technology. So my personal hope is where research is concerned, where, you know, science is concerned, it should be borderless. And I think as for what that engenders, as for the advantages that each country may lose, let the policymakers decide that. But I think there has to be and I think the National Committee <laughs> certainly agrees with this one, um, is that there has to be some nexus of cooperation, communication, and exchange. You know, like in the 1960s, when the National Committee was actually the only organization that kept this flow going between China and US, a trickle, I would say, that we know that history tells us, you know, things coming cycles and ebbs and flows. And this age of great power competition, as some will call it, what also pass. I just hope that by the end of it, we'll actually have a common landing that we, on which we can still build things moving forward. So for one final question, I'd like to ask uh, why you wrote the book the way that you did, uh, where you focus on both human characters and written characters. You know, a lot of the history of China, you know, or history in general, we tend to focus on the big people, the revolutionaries, the martyrs, you know, the, the villains. And this book is very much about the what I call the second and third stringers of history, who really had to pick up the pieces after revolution and think about how do we move China forward? You know, there were the people they, who had to build step-by-step. Step. And that's why every chapter of my book is actually, you know, even though it's a kingdom of characters about written characters, it's also more importantly about the human characters behind them that went through every phase of failure, who tried to reach far, who through their successes and failures and, and, and setbacks helped propel the next stage in the Chinese script revolution forward. And that's essentially, in the end, what I, how I wanted to convey this is, I think through the stories of people, because it's very much about putting ourselves, putting you know, the reader into, their, into China's shoes and China's shoes and, and China into their shoes. So that's what I was hoping to do with the way that the book was written. Well, this has been a great and informative conversation. And thank you so much, Jing, for joining us today to discuss your new book and share your insights. And again, that's uh, Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern. It's an excellent read, uh, something for everyone. And I highly recommend it to any of our viewers. Thank you again, Jing. Thank you so much. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.